Welcome to the Humanise the Numbers podcast series. Leaders, managers and owners of ambitious accounting firms sharing insights, successes and issues that will challenge you and connect you and your firm to the ways and means of transforming your firm's results. I mean, I've gone into loads of meetings with a lot of worries and always we have good meetings with clients because you actually, you do know so much more. Uh, you don't know more about their business than they do, but you know more about business than they do because you've seen so many businesses and you can take those ideas from one business and push them into another. And that I think that's really powerful. Where's the value in an accountant having a strategy conversation with a client and an accountability conversations with clients. Well, in this podcast discussion with Hugh Stedman of CNH Stedman in Hell Henstead, you'll hear Hugh describe his views on how uh, talking the historical reports from annual accounts is so last year and actually talking about the future is so where we need to be at as a profession, where you need to be as an accounting firm. Let's go to that discussion with Hugh now. Hello, I'm Hugh Stedman, CNH Stedman. Uh, we're a partnership accountancy firm uh, established 1st of October 2001. So we're coming up for our 20th anniversary. Well, congratulations. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. And then my background, I am, um, well, actually, I was going to be a bricklayer when I left school. That oh, right. was my plan. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a bricklayer as a son, Hugh, I have. My youngest so, son's currently being a bricklayer. I was going to walk out of school having done GCSEs. Yes, I yep. am that young. Yeah. And then I decided I would do A-levels. Right. And I really enjoyed maths and statistics. I've always right. enjoyed numbers, but I really like the statistics. And I didn't really see that as a career progression until my father, who has been working in tax for many years, said to me, why don't you train as an accountant? Right. So I thought, okay, like the sound of that. Found a job with a friend who was an accountant. Uh, worked for him for a few years. He had two businesses. One was more on the wholesaling side, and I ran the accounts department. And the oh. other one was helping him in his accountancy practice. I then moved on to one of his clients and ran his accountancy practice. Right. And Sorry, not his accountancy practice. I ran his accounts department. And then from there, I started to... Uh, set up my own business, uh, a practice, um, as a sole trader. And then after a few years, things got difficult for my father and his job, and right. we joined together in partnership, oh, right. and it went from there. Right. So that was 2001 when you kicked off. That's right, yeah. And how, how many in the team now, then, you? Uh, there's nine of us. Right. So nine people, and how many clients? About 120. Right, okay. 120 clients and of, of massive degree of difference in sizes like most firms <laughs> okay well go on explain to me what what, what how, how do you describe the, the the difference between the largest client and the, and the smallest client the largest fee and the smallest fee well the smallest client would just be somebody who we just do a annual tax return for um just really to help them along and we might only charge them 100 pounds plus vat right. just just for keeping them on the straight and narrow yeah um Largest client, we've taken over an accounts department of a, a good, loyal client for many years who really grew during COVID. They had right. a, they do janitorial supplies, and we would be charging them best part of 50K 
plus. Right. right. Brilliant. So that is a big cross-section. So when you say 120 clients, is that 120 business clients or 120 clients including the um, – Yeah, would, it, it would include the little ones. But if, if it's a partnership, I would count that as one client even yeah. if there would be five or six partners in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. And um, what, what approximately, Hugh, what's the total fees, total annualised fees? Uh, we've, we, we hovered between four and 500,000 right. for, for years. And right. recently we've made quite a push. Right. 2020, we didn't push it forward. 2021, we've just crossed the half a million mark and climbing. Our right. target for this year, 600,000. Our three-year target is to hit a million pounds. So in three years from now, so in 2024? Yeah. Yeah? 2024 million pounds. That's what we're hoping for, yeah. All right, okay. So why, why, why are you aiming for that level of fees? What's, what's, what's the driver? Just because it's a nice round figure All right. to aim for. <laughs> and I always, always wanted to have a million pound practice. Business, okay. Business. And when, when you're under half a million, you think, is this really possible? But it's a dream. And now yeah, things yeah. are starting to happen. So that's really encouraging. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it almost seems like a short hop, doesn't it? The long hop to 600K. Yeah. Short hop from 600 to a million. That's it, yeah. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Okay, and I think so, as, along with that, Paul, we've expanded our offering such that we found opportunities that we ha hadn't really appreciated were out there before, particularly in relation to um, run completely running a firm's accounts department um, if they can drop one or two people out of their business, yeah. then you're replacing wages in what you do, and they're prepared to pay a significant amount of money for it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so tell me about how that came about then, Hugh, the first time. Because it's always like when you do it the first time, you go, oh, oh, right, yeah, maybe we can. And then you do it a second time, and then all of a sudden you go, oh, actually, there's a real business model here. So tell me about how that came about first time around. Um, we had a chat with some friends who are business advisors, and right. just went over what we were doing. And they said, oh, well, we know some, an accountant who does credit control. Right. And we thought, oh, I'd never thought of doing credit control. But I used to do credit control. I understand it. Of course. Yeah. And so we started talking about it. And we said, well, hang on. We know at least a couple of our clients where they seem to be stuck with somebody in their accounts department who they've outgrown. They're not good enough to grow. But they haven't really got a position where they could get rid of them because they would need to replace them. Yeah. So if they outsource the accounts department, they can then say the job's no longer there. It's a bit cynical, but that's the way to move it forward and just to help the, help the client progress. Yeah, and it yeah, worked well, really well. Yeah, so if a client's got an issue and a challenge and you can actually talk to them around a solution, then you're helping the client. Okay, now there may be a human cost to that in, in terms of jobs, Yeah. Uh, but actually in the round there isn't because you're hiring people or you're working with people and, 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 and they may be move one or two people into a different role in the business that might benefit the business because I've, I've, I've heard that happen you where you know instead of it, it, it this being seen as a negative it can be seen as a positive and, it, and it's worked for me you know my accountant approached us and said Paul do you really want Kate doing all your bookkeeping because she's spending you know one and a half days a week you know doing that when she could be free to do other things and it's like well actually well, she wants to learn the you know, revisit learning the piano again. And they go, right, well, what, 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 how do we do this and what will it cost? And then, you know, we end up paying, instead of paying 5,000, paying eight and a half grand a year. But Kate's freed up from, uh, for, 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 from work that she doesn't really want to do and is, is playing the piano again. Brilliant. I so, like that story. That's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a positive flip, isn't it? As opposed to actually what we're going to do is put somebody out of work. Yeah, and quite honestly, if you're, if you're in a job and you're struggling with that job and you're getting pulled up all the time, and, you know, under pressure to, you know, jobs do get beyond people after a while. Some people yeah, are much more yeah. comfortable in a small business than a larger business. Yes. 
Yes. And uh, so there's a humanity in the change. It's not just it, it, that's benefiting everyone, albeit maybe one or two people might not see it in that moment when they end up doing something that they feel better at, are better at. Yeah, and um, it's actually taken me to a space where I feel a lot more comfortable as well because although I am an accountant and I can do the accounts and I can do the tax to a degree, my father yeah. tends to do more of it than I do, right. um, the bookkeeping, the credit control, that sort of thing, I would happily oversee 100 people doing that, but yeah. I wouldn't happily oversee 100 people doing accounts. Yes. Brilliant, brilliant. So um, how is that... that uh, family business piece then how does that how, how does it, how does that work for you you and your dad yeah it seems to have worked very well i think that because we started the business up together rather yeah. than in many family businesses that he started up and i came into it right. um we've always worked very well together he's always been very generous with me and always let me take the the lion's share of the profit which is very kind of him all right <laughs> you'll have to introduce him to me because my dad didn't when we set up in business it didn't work like that at all <laughs> <laughs> and now I've got my own challenge because I've brought my eldest son into the business um, as right. a partner. And right. I've also got two of my daughters working for me as well. So we're so very right, much a family right business. Royal, right yeah. royal family business. So, um, uh, so and in, in, interestingly, Paul, our marketers or marketing people are doing designing our new website have really seized on that. The Good. fact that we've, we're a family business and a lot of our clients are also family businesses and they're it's bringing nature, that in to the marketing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Fantastic. Well, well done them. Well done them. Cause it's something, um, you know, it's worthy of notice to use one of our, our, our core values is if you're doing things worthy of notice, it'll, uh, it, it will resonate. It'll yeah. mean something to your clients, uh, which is fantastic. So, so you're uh, nine team members, but more than half of them, it sounds are your family. Do the others feel like outsiders? Then? No, it wasn't nineteen, Paul. It was nine. Nine, so <laughs> nine, nine. But half of them, or more than half of the family, yeah. do, do the others feel like outsiders? Because that's a that's a, an interesting uh, possible challenge. Well, I think they would do if we treated them as outsiders, but we just embrace them, and they're all part of the family. All <laughs> oh, right. It, so it's it, it's often easy to um, say that and chuckle about that, but how 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 do, how do you make that work though? You know, what is it you're doing so that they are genuinely included? Inclus it's an inclusive environment. Yeah, I think that just the way that we reward them and we look after them. Um, it's very interesting. We've taken on a um, Polish guy who uh, worked for a firm in Harrow before he right. came here, and yep. after. I think four weeks we said to him, how are you getting on? And he said, well, he said, um, what I don't understand is why nobody gets angry around here. <laughs> oh, he really? Said, he said, if you do, you don't show it. Right. So I, I thought, oh, goodness, what on earth has he come from? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, different cultures, different working practices, different standards as well, isn't there? Yeah. Uh, you know, different firms. But yeah, I, um, I mean, I, I would like them to be cared for and looked after and and not to feel that they're outside of the situation because they're not part of the family we're really pleased to have others working for us because of course <laughs> you're not unlimited in family you're limited in family members but not with non-family not, not members. in the rest of the employee you put the possible people you could employ you're brilliant and i guess you know a, a family business will appeal to certain types of people wanting to come in the firm and not to others i guess so, yeah. so how has it impacted your ability to recruit um, we've recruited a couple of our, um, newest members relatively recently and right. both of them we found pretty 
easy to recruit. Right. Um, I think that that's partly because of COVID and people, some people losing their jobs. Right. Um, but yeah, we've got two really good new team members and we're very, very pleased. Right. So it sounds as though 2020 um, has been an interesting year for you in terms of you've been able to flip from that sub 500k to actually we are 500, 500k, 600k business. You've hired extra people, uh, presumably because of the growth and the need to expand your capacity. Um, uh, so what was going on before then? Is, uh, is there anything else that's kicked off in 2020 that we can add into the mix here? Or is the... Um, is that a good reference point for how well the business is done? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things that we did is we moved away from um, work in progress. What it, do you mean exactly? What do you mean exactly? Well, recording all of our time spent on clients and billing according to that. Right. Uh, we, we made a conscientious move to monthly billing. And right. um, we did for a while actually stop recording our time altogether, but we have moved back to that. Yeah. Um, just for internal uh, assessment and purposes. Right. But in the main, the 2020 was a struggle because we had some clients who came to us and said, we're having things really difficult. Could you reduce your fees for six months? Mm. Uh, which we generally did. Oh, really? Um, right. just, just to help them along. And, but also because we'd stopped this work in progress side of things and there was a if you like, a, a natural decrease because, generally speaking, an accountant overvalues their work in progress and there's write-offs. Now we run our business. We still have a little bit of work in progress. We haven't been able to move away from it entirely, but yeah. but we, we're generally running at under 10,000, whereas at one point we are about 150,000. So it's a massive, massive difference. Right. And I'd recommend it to any accountant. Um, why? Where's the, where's the upside benefit of doing it this way rather than the other way? I think the biggest upside benefit is the time it takes to analyse your work in progress and the negativity that comes in when you spend a lot of time on one client. Right. One of the biggest mistakes that we used to make was we'd take on a new client, yeah. we'd, we'd take a long time getting their information where we needed it, bill them a lot of money, and within a year or two, they got disgruntled and moved away. Right, okay. If we do it now, we agree the fee up front. We probably lose money on them in the first year, but we don't lose the client. We've got a long-term relationship, which, um, you know, you make the money as the years go along. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so the, the negativity, on, negativity on one client around WIP is from the client's perspective in that, you know, the, the clock just keeps ticking. Yeah. You charge them a fortune. But But not just that. The other thing is that you're in a situation where you don't charge them and you've got yeah. a massive work in progress and you suddenly have to write £10,000 off or something, it yeah. kind of doesn't strengthen that relationship. If you don't know that, yeah. the pain isn't there in the same way and you just do what you do best, which is look after the client. <laughs> yes, yeah. so actually, whether you look at it from the client's perspective or yours and possibly even your team's perspective, it's creating those negative emotions which yeah. result in actually the relationship not working as well as it other would done, which will also contribute to the client leaving because yeah. you're feeling disgruntled that you, you're not getting paid for the work that you're doing. Yeah, and the phone rings and it's the client again yeah. Yeah. and you know that you're already well over from what you're billing them and it, can, it, it will show in your voice. Yeah, 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 and 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 the and the delays that you might then, in fact, you know, you might promise to do it by a certain date and you don't because it's like, well, they've got these other clients who we are making money on that I need to do work Precisely. for. Precisely, they, they 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 get they get the second fiddle rather than the first uh, first level of client service. Yeah. 
Um, but ultimately, from where you've described it, though, uh, Hugh, is you're still losing money the first year round with some clients. Yeah, but, likely, you don't, yeah. but you don't feel as bad. How, how exactly. does that? How does that work? Then? <laughs> <laughs> it, well, it still doesn't sound right, does it? I mean, I look at a client relationship as a long-term relationship. So, you know, if it, if it means we've got to spend extra time and investment now in getting things right for them in the first year, and if yeah. in that year you could really strengthen the relationship and they can identify the fact that you have moved things forward um, mm. for them, they're going to stay with you. You're going to make money with them in the future years. That, to me, that's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So even if you could get to a place where it's sort of break even year one and then margin after that, but if there's mild losses, if you've got them for seven, ten years, it it all stacks up in the in the long run. That's it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, cool. It's it's interesting, Hugh. There's you know, a lot of firms that we've come across and that we work with who actually agree a different year one fee to year two in order to acknowledge all the learning that has to take place. Now, they're often really uncomfortable with going to a client and saying, look, we want to charge you this amount as opposed to what they really want to do is charge a lower amount that they're more comfortable with. But from the client's perspective, they, they're, they're looking at you for the first time. They don't know what the first price is yeah. until you come up with it. And it's, yeah. it's that internal perception of price that um, they are challenged internally, the, the client's less challenged. Um, yeah. so, sometimes in a situation where we know there's a lot of extra things to do initially, yes. we would charge a one-off initial fee and then it yes. goes to the monthly agreed fee. Yes. And because the customer or client is generally ready to change at that point, they, they do that quite happily. Yeah, yeah. They, they eventually suck up and realise that they, they, that's got to be done in order to get the thing going in the right way. Yeah. Um, brilliant. So a uh, big shift from 2019 to 2020 from whip-style bill what's on the clock or write it off to one where we've got um, what uh, monthly agreements with every client now? Uh, it wouldn't be every client, but most clients, yeah. So, we, we set ourselves a challenge on monthly billing. Right. Um, when we would, it was about 16,000 a month. Yeah. And now we've got it to over 40,000 a month. So how far back do we go when it was on 16 a month? I think that was the beginning of 2019. So we right. went a year when we were concentrating on it, then made the decision to stop the work in progress billing. Yeah. And then it's kind of continued to climb up. And I think it's made us a much more valuable business as well because yeah. people love monthly fees. Yes. So, so I just want to talk that one back. So people, you mean your clients love monthly fees. They don't want an annual fee. Yeah, clients love it. Right. And so would an investor. And so would an investor. So from the, the capital value of the business perspective, they would if, they were, if you were selling or you wanted to part sell. Yeah. Um, so I, I agree wholeheartedly with that. It's one of the um, things I always try and find for my clients as well. Is there something where you could introduce monthly billing in some way, shape or form? Yeah, monthly payment plan, whether it be direct debit, go cardless or whatever, yeah. there's, uh, there's ways and means. Um, but can I just pursue the clients love it? Have you had, what resistance have you had from clients to shift from an annual whip, what's on the clock type approach to monthly billing. What sort of resistance have you met? I don't think we had it. We sold it well, I think. We just All said right. to them, look, the way we're doing it at the moment, if we have a bad day, you pay for it. Right. <laughs> yeah, interesting. But now if we have a bad day, we pay for it. Right. Uh, but the other thing it, do it does is it forces you to look for efficiencies because the more efficient you are, the better you get paid if you're doing it on a monthly billing Whereas yes. if you're doing it on a per hour, 
there's no re- nothing to stop you stretching the the job out. Yes, uh, and and how connected are your team to that commercial reality? That's different when you're looking at WIP. Um, see, I, my, my argument here is that with um, you know time based billing, um, the, uh, the the team can see that if the if the clock goes up, they're going to bill more. The reality is the partner or the client manager writes lots off. Yeah. Um, but the team members go, oh, we're just going to make more money because I'm spending more time on it. And actually, I need to get it absolutely right, so I'm going to spend more time on it. And therefore, the, the write-offs and the uh, lack of profit or the loss on those jobs goes up compared with, no, let's agree a monthly fee. And your point about, well, if we've got a monthly fee, we're going to actively seek out the efficiencies. Um, you would, but I'm just wondering, what's the impact on your team? Do they see it that way as well, or how are they responding? Yeah, it's a good question. Um it was my son who really encouraged me to move away from WIP. Right. Um, so he was on board right from the start. And okay. he's also tech savvy. So he was looking at all of these efficient ways of increasing and helping efficiency. Yes. Um, as a breed, if I'm allowed to say that, uh, accountants, you are. accountants tend to be quite pernickety and not very commercially minded. And so they will take a long time over a job. I think we've got one or two members in the team who just encourage them to speed up and find alternative ways, and that really helps. One thing we do is we have a checklist for jobs, and we have a time column to show how long it took us to do each part of the job last time and how long it takes this time. Right. So all the time we're challenging the time that we take to do a job. And if it takes a lot longer than usual, will say, well, why was that? What happened this month or this quarter that was different to last time? Yes. Very good. Very good. So a couple of in- interesting pointers there. One is the checklist for jobs. Yeah. So w- when you say checklist for jobs, is, uh, w- is that within your workflow planning tool or is it a, a physical manual check? How, how do you make that work? Uh, we've got both. We have got it within our, our um, CRM system, which is Carbon. Right, brilliant. Um, which works well, but we have yeah. also got paper copies for those of us who are not so it savvy (laughs) (laughs) very good i won't dive into that one you're all right um so there there is an argument that um checklists are an inhuman way to work with intelligent motivated people when we actually they they know accounts they should be able to make it work what's your view on the Humanity versus inhumanity of using and sticking to checklists. Uh, well, I go to the checklist manifesto book, which. Oh right. I mean, if doctors need it and it help them improve, then accountants need it. And and I would argue if airline pilots need it, yeah, then accountants can also benefit from it. You know, we all the the safest form of transport on the planet is actually an aeroplane which is many many tons in the sky which i can never quite get my head around but the one of the reasons it's the safest is because of the pre-flight 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 checklist that is running every plane across the planet yeah i think a lot of time is wasted just thinking about what you do next yes and if you've got a checklist or even a to-do list you move on um seamlessly 
Yeah, yeah, and I, I'm, I, it's Atul Gawanda, isn't it? The yeah. uh, Checklist Manifesto. It's a simply outstanding piece. We've got a. Uh, I did a four-page business breakthrough report, which just cap- captures the essence of that. So, um, if you're listening to this and you want to uh, avail yourself of that four-page, we'll put it in the uh, in the show notes of the podcast, and I'll forward you a copy. Uh, Hugh, you might be interested. Yeah, in appreciate just, that. Yeah, capture that. It's, it's. I love it. I loved it, and it, I, I, that's why I asked the question: Is is a checklist more or less human? Yeah. <laughs> and and what what was brilliant for me in that was how um, uh, he, the, the, Atul Gawanda described how there was a natural human resistance to checklists, yeah. but once they get into the rhythm and the habit of using them, they see that there's a freedom attached to that, and you can apply your prefrontal cortex to the smart stuff within the pathway. The checklist is a pathway to what you do next. As, as you quite rightly say. Yeah. I just thought it was a marvellous piece of uh, insight, marvellous. Yeah, it is really good. But along with that, to add the time taken means that you can kind of challenge it and look for your efficiencies at the same time. Yeah, it's a good waste management piece in terms of creating a, a, an opportunity to have conversations with the team. And if they're contributing to the improvement of the process and therefore the speed of the job, they're going to feel as though they've contributed more than just doing the work, aren't they? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you kind of... They make sure they tell you if they do it quicker than last time. Uh, absolutely. Uh, so, so there's that, almost that natural Kaizen, you know, continuous improvement piece coming to play, which yep. is actually, I believe, is more human than them just coming in and doing a job and going home and coming in and doing a job and going home. Yeah. Um, brilliant. Brilliant. Um, so any other big challenges or shifts in, in recent times that um, signpost uh, the, you know, uh, things we can talk about in this humanise the numbers space, you know, getting the best out of your team, getting the best out of the numbers? Well, um, I'll try to keep smiling on this one, Paul, but all right. end of November, I caught COVID. Right. And um, I was quite poorly with it for a week. Right. And then beginning of December, it went to my chest and I had COVID pneumonia and all I was right. in hospital um, for eight days, seven of them on oxygen. Right. And, um, yeah, I didn't know whether my last days had scary. come. Scary. Scary. It was very scary. Yeah. But what was amazing was that my son really stepped up. And he, I mean, it's been said you don't know how tall a man is until you stretch him. Well, he's already six foot five. All right. But, <laughs> boy, he stepped up. Right. To the degree that we've brought him into the partnership now because he, he made himself invaluable to us. Right. And, but it was a real lesson book to me because I'm quite sure if I hadn't gone through that experience, negative as it was, there's a massive positive in that I rely on him so much more now and realise that he's got so much more potential than I ever realised. That's, that's, that, uh, this sounds weird, I'm sorry, but it sounds like a brilliant story in terms of... Um, that you know the the expectations we set on our people, even if it is our son within the business, our family, and I, I work with my son in my business too, so I've got some real sympathy for that. And um, the, I, 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 I work I work with a firm up in um, Lancashire, a chap called Nigel Bennett. Who some people listen to this will know Nigel from Halliday's. And I was once in a meeting with Nigel, and he said, "Isn't it interesting, Paul, how we um, our people perform down to our expectations of them?" And I yeah. thought it was a brilliant line by Nigel. It's like, oh, what have you just said, Nigel? And you got him to say it again. And it's like, well, we wouldn't do that with our kids, would we? We'd expect the best from our kids. But what you're saying is, actually, maybe we could expect even more from our kids. Maybe we can expect even more from every one of our employees and then create a working environment that enables them to achieve the best of each and every one of them. 
Um, and if it takes something like your your illness in, in, in the winter to, to actually flick that switch, you go, right. Doesn't it change the way you uh, run your appraisals and you look at every team member? I mean, I'm curious to see whether it's changed any processes as a consequence of that experience, Hugh. Yeah, I think it's just given us the confidence to to move forward in a, in a way that we what well, I didn't have before. Yeah. And it's also given my father the confidence to move more towards a, a retired role rather than a, a proactive role as well. Role. Um, because you've got that, that you know, and, and it, he must feel brilliant about, you know, he's his son and he's his grandson yeah. actually um, making this thing work. That must be uh, fantastic. Yeah, well, yeah. He, he is starting to um, wind down in the work that he does in the business. But right. five years ago, there wouldn't have been any thought of it at all. But now yeah, he's yeah, doing yeah. it and he's doing it with confidence. Right. And proactively by the sound of the way you're talking about it, which is uh, fantastic. There's, um, I, I've got an experience of um, one of my clients who had a, 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 a serious health issue uh, a year and a half ago, uh, which forced him out of the business unexpectedly. Mm. But all credit to him, he was uh, grooming, uh, you know, one, one person in particular for the future of the firm. Um, and his bowing out of the business happened um, and he's, he's not going back in just because his illness prevents it. Um, uh, but we were on a three-year development program with the person to, you know, build up the skill and knowledge to take over the firm. And we were about 12 months in, so it was two years way too early. Um, but him, like your son, uh, stepped up to the plate and has done an amazing job, uh, despite all the challenges associated with someone in a, you know, two million plus turnover firm who was instrumental in everything that went on in that firm, no longer being there. Um, and so I just, that... Um, that insight from Nigel, isn't it interesting how we, how our people perform down to our expectations of them? Yeah. And well, actually, if we can just flip our expectations, maybe just maybe we completely change our firm. Yeah. And another thing which is interesting, Paul, which I didn't know before, is that I had put my son on a leadership course at right. the beginning of the year, which, which lasted for about 12 months. And right. at the beginning of the course, he had to write down what his aspirations were and what he wanted to get out of the course. Right, one goals, of, yeah. One of the things he wrote down was I would like to run the practice for two weeks with little or no input from my father. <laughs> so it's his fault you were <laughs> <laughs> Wow, so he got his goal within 12 months? Yeah, I, wow. I don't think it worked out quite the way he expected No, no, to. I'm sure he wouldn't have wanted it to happen that way. Forced but, into um, it, but he did a great job. So yeah, yeah, it was brilliant. a very interesting experience yeah, as far as yeah, that was concerned. Yeah. Yeah, marvellous. So can, can we touch on one other subject then, uh, uh, Hugh, before we head towards the end of this discussion? Um, one, one of my arguments, and it's not just mine, it's the, you know, the profession are talking about this, every firm's talking about this in some way, shape or form, that there's, this, there's a trend which is from compliance towards advisory work. Yeah. Um, and I don't think ever we'll get to a place where there's no compliance. There will always be some. And, you know, the, the, the experience of Australian firms is as they go do more and more advisory work, they actually end up with more and more compliance work, which is interesting. In fact, they end up with more compliance work than the firms who aren't advisory firms, which I think is even more interesting. Yeah. Um, what, 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 what's been yours and your firm's experience of this sort of compliance to advisory piece? And, and um, I guess what I want to do is, is dive into a little bit more detail about these, these businesses that you've been the virtual accounts department for. So what... what what more has happened and what more do you see happening in that space for you and your firm? Yeah, well, we set ourselves up as a 
uh, very much a firm that offered management accounts as well as annual accounts. And we've right. done that for about 10 years now. Right. Most of our business clients would have either monthly or quarterly management accounts. Yeah. So that fits in well with the pattern of monthly billing because we're doing things with them on a regular basis. Basis, of course, yes. Um, so we very much see that, although it is still to a degree historic, yeah. um, you, you can advise someone in a, much better if you've got up-to-date financials on them. Um, I agree. I hate the history teacher side of yeah. accounting. Um, yeah. Much prefer to be the visionary and look ahead and actually show them by the numbers how amazingly different things can be with a minimal amount of tweaks. Yeah. Um, on the specifically on the accounts department side, um, yeah. it, it's a big undertaking to take on an accounts department. It's a, it's it's quite a different space if you like. So yeah. we couldn't take on too many all at once. Yeah. Um, but we kind of take it on, make it more efficient, and then we look for another one. That's the way we've, right. we've tended to do it. That's brilliant. And we take on, um, we have the phone number for the accounts department dedicated to us, and we answer in the name of who's calling, which can be done quite easily with IT these days. Yes. Um, we take on the email address for the accounts department and um, just work with them. In relation to taking it one step further, one thing I've started doing is that one thing I've realized is that one of the major, major things that's missing in many, many businesses is accountability, particularly family businesses. Pe right. People seem, tend to let each other off if it's family. Yes. So I've set up for a couple of businesses now an accountability package um, where I'm working with them on a weekly basis and they have to they set their own targets and then once a week on a friday um, my whatsapp starts pinging away and it will be one of the two firms sending me their numbers for the last week and how they did and that is right. proving really really successful and you're right there in constant touch with the client they also put on there if they have a good win or something and you can kind of give them a thumbs up or well oh. done or whatever it's it's brilliant mm. Uh, that is really human. <laughs> uh, well, it is. It's, you know, and essentially you've got a uh, brilliant piece of communication, which is weekly. Yeah. I mean, you know, how many accounting firms at, at, at the level you're at are having a weekly interaction with their biggest, best clients? And there won't be too many. Um, and albeit it's seconds, it still means something to the uh, client. And you've got it focused on accountability. So you must be having some bigger discussions with them to set those uh, expectations if you will of the weeks that are coming how do you do that yeah well I, we actually sit down and have an accountability session or maybe it may be a strategic session and the accountability comes in as part of it yes but i'm very focused on letting them set their own goals yes the worst thing you can do is to suggest a goal to them because right. then it's not their own and it feels forced yeah, on yeah, them yeah, yeah. but if they Brilliant. set their own goal then <laughs> they've only blamed themselves uh, indeed. Well, they're not blaming you, are they? But they, don't they? Don't they grow to dislike you because you're the accountability merchant? Does that does that not like alienate them? Probably hasn't been going on long enough yet. No, to do that, right? <laughs> but the other thing, of course, there's lots of <clears throat> emojis on WhatsApp to do smiley faces and thumbs up and claps and just stuff like that. Just to soften it. Yeah. yeah, 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 just to soften it. Which, again, you know, there's a humanity attached to that which didn't exist and doesn't... I guess it's creeping into emails now, but... Um, 
yeah, brilliant. So, um, so you've got two clients in that space now. What's, what, what are the plans? So you, you've got this journey to a million pounds in uh, the next three years by 2024. How, how much of that is attached to this virtual financial department type role? Um, yeah, it's something I'd like to introduce more. It, it very much depends on the firm because some firms have got a good accountability within the firm. They're much right. more structured than others. But so you're talking the client firms? The yes. client firms, yeah. yeah. So yeah. We, yeah. we would look at it on a client basis. We've offered it to some, and they've said, no, we don't really need that. Right. Some have kind of jumped on it and seized it with both hands and just said, that's just what we need, because yes. we do let each other off. Yes. So instead of having to report to dad, you report to the accountant. Yes. It, it does change the dynamic, doesn't it? It's putting that third third person in the room. Yeah. Um, I mean, I had, had a meeting with a client recently when we discussed it, and he had his two sons in the room with him. And unexpectedly, we decided to bring them in as partners. That wasn't the aim of the meeting, but that's the way yeah. it evolved. The younger one, who I never really thought had much ability, has been hitting the phone as a result. He committed to 25 calls a week, Last yeah. week he did a hundred, and he's absolutely motoring, and they're pulling right, in new right. customers. Absolutely brilliant. Quality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and yet, the, the brilliant thing about it is that I get credited with that, <laughs> even though you haven't done anything. Yeah, but you have. No, no, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. I know. But it's interesting, isn't it? That you know, uh, 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 lots of accountants uh, would feel uncomfortable putting themselves in that place where they're having a a difficult conflict-based conversation around setting goals and then the accountability. Um, so you, you've made that leap, Hugh. How, how did you break down this, or oh, this is this could be a little bit uncomfortable, or did it just feel like falling off a log for you? Yeah. Um, if I had my choice, I would sit down and have meetings with clients all the time and not do any work. <laughs> well, I would any, argue that other the work. real work, yeah, yeah, I was going to say, I would argue that the real work is the relationship work because therein lies the real capital value of your business yeah. on the grounds that it's their ability and willingness to stay with you, which is mostly attached to the way they feel because of the meetings you have with them, not because of the accounts work you do. Yeah, I mean, um, I've gone into loads of meetings with a lot of worries and always we have good meetings with clients. Yeah, yeah. Because you actually, you do know so much more, uh, you don't know more about their business than they do but you know more about business than they do because you've seen so many businesses and you can Definitely. take those ideas from one business and push them into another. And that I think that's really powerful. Um, I agree wholeheartedly with you. Um, it's the, uh, there's an ambiguity, isn't there, going into a meeting because you don't really know what to expect yeah. in any meeting. Uh, but you can ask a few prepared questions. You, know, you have your checklist called an agenda. And you can give some structure and form to the meeting. But ultimately, uh, like you say, the client knows their business better than you do. But if you ask one or two um, dumb questions, you don't have to be savvy questions. You just ask one or two dumb questions and all of a sudden you get great value out of the meeting. Yeah, yeah. and they, uh, that's the interesting thing is so often they've got the answers, but all yeah. you need to do is to steer them in the it's direction printed. of them. Absolutely. I was with, uh, I was with a, a, a fast-growing firm yesterday, uh, Hugh, um, uh, they've gone from 5 million to 7.6 million in the last two years. And, um, and and they were talking about their outside advisor who holds them to account like you do with your clients. And uh, they know nothing about their business and accountancy and um, and ask the dumbest of questions, which then creates a, the most valuable of conversations around which then they improve their business. 
And it's, um, you know, we, we don't have to be the expert. We just need to be there with an ambition to deal with the ambiguity, to ask a few questions and engage in a conversation which results in the client making a decision because it's their business. Have I got that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, you would say that, wouldn't you? Because we're heading towards the end of the podcast. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's very kind of you. It's very kind of you. Hugh, what's, um, what, what I'd like to ask is, uh, I, we, we spent the last you know, uh, 40, 50 minutes talking about you and, and your business. Of all the things that we've talked about, what, what stood out that, as, as, a, as a gentle reminder in terms of the, 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 the journey you've been on, what, what aspect of our conversation do you think has been of most value to the firm? Um, I think actually, Paul, it's having a vision. Oh, really? I mean, we stagnated for all those years. Mm. But once we started talking about becoming a million pound practice and putting things in place in relation to that and starting yeah. to seriously consider how we were going to get there and yeah. spend a bit of time on the business rather than in it, that has made all the difference. And I send a weekly update to the team with it clearly stated on the top what our vision is and what our target for this year is and where we're panning. And I get buy-in from the team on that as well. They often come back and say, brilliant, glad to see the, the ticker still moving up. You know, the right yeah. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Well, great that you put in, you've got a weekly reminder going into the team. Yeah around that vision. So you're 52 opportunities a year to remind everyone this is where the journey we're on. Because <laughs> yeah, I think it's one thing to have the vision and go through the process of setting it up. It's a completely different thing to prompt and remind everybody every week, this is where we're going. Yeah. This is what it will look like eventually. Um, and so and it helps that, them to feel really included in what's happening as well. And, and then they make a suggestion and, okay, you knock it back because it's not right and you explain why and they make another one and you implement it and all of a sudden the levels of engagement is higher yet again. Yeah, um, and, and you can move it in relation to that vision as well. So you mm. can say, look, that's a really good idea and yeah. in some situations it would be absolutely brilliant, but it doesn't yeah. actually fit in with our vision, which you know is this. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Um, I'd, I'd like to, uh, to finish off. I'd just like to throw a, gaunt, a bit of a challenge gauntlet down for you. Because uh, um, over the years, we realized that um, accountancy firms, really, the capital values attached to their you know, gross recurring fees. So, you know, they, they get a bit fee obsessed as opposed to actually for the next 10 years, we might be fee obsessed. But wouldn't it be great if we actually made significantly more margin rather than just growing the fees? And um, one, of, one of the conversations we've been having in uh, recent years with all the firms we work with is what's your... Um, What's your fees per full-time equivalent as a number? And how far off being 100K per person are you? Now, I'm not asking you to answer this, Hugh. I'm just posing a challenge to you and everyone listening that there's a... Because um, can you see, is if you can get to a place where you've got in excess of 100 grand, 100,000 pounds per full-time employee, it starts you looking at what you're doing in a different light, both from a pricing point of view and an efficiency point of view, as opposed to just from a fee-based perspective. Yeah. Well, what, what, so, one thing I've kept a bit secret from you through this, Paul, is that all right. I, I, I'm a bit of a price psychologist. Oh, right. And I love pricing. It, right. it brings out a lot of passion with me. And I'm actually running a few seminars on pricing. So, But one of the things I would advise to anybody, my strapline of my pricing company is there's money on the table. Right. And one of the things that I would encourage anybody is that if yeah. they're doing a quote for a client, Make it three coat, 
quotes have a gold silver and a bronze yeah, yeah, yeah. it's amazing how many people go for a higher tier than you expect them to but if you'd only yeah, gone yeah. in with the bronze price that's all you would have got and you might not get that because if you only go in with one price yep. you're giving them hobson's choice yeah and uh, to wrap up do you know who hobson was hugh um ring any bells go on <laughs> All right. Thank you for the trigger. Thank you for the prompt. So uh, I think it was Thomas Hobson, 1780s, something like that. And he ran a stables in Cambridge and rented horses out to the students, the undergraduates coming to Cambridge, because in the 1780s there weren't things called cars. And, um, and a student would walk into the stables and he'd go, right, here, you can have this black one. So I don't want a black one, I want a white one. So well, you can have the black one or you can, you can exit stage left. He said, I don't think he was that polite. Um, and so the phrase Hobson's choice, you've got one choice. So you've ta- essentially you've got no choice. Yeah. So if you don't give clients a choice, you've taken their autonomy away. You've taken their ability to make a decision in their own right away from them. So I would argue that if you give people only one price, you reduce the likelihood of them saying yes, because you've only given them two options. It's either yes or no, yeah. and- as opposed to giving them three where they can make a, an informed choice. Yeah. And this is what I say to my clients. I say to them, make it such that, the customer is choosing between you and you. Brilliant. Yeah, brilliant. Perfect line. Absolutely. Bob, we're in absolute agreement on that one. And I've got loads of experience with loads of firms talking exactly the same processes, you know, three option pricing, top top down, work out what to take out and help the client make an informed choice. But don't avoid making a recommendation and justifying the recommendation within the three because they need to see you as a trusted advisor. Yeah. Brilliant. Hugh, this has been um, really enjoyable. I really appreciate you taking time out and, uh, and, and, uh, and chewing the fat with us on this Humanise the Numbers podcast. Thank you very, very, very much. That's fine. I've enjoyed it as well, Paul. You'll find more valuable discussions with the leaders of ambitious accounting firms at humanisethenumbers.online. You can also sign up to be notified each time a new podcast is made available. This podcast series, Humanise the Numbers, has been made possible thanks to the support of our sponsors, My Work Papers, Advanced Track, Satago and VFD Pro. Visit humanisethenumbers.online, click the logo of each sponsor and you'll hear what our podcast interviewees have to say about the sponsor's services.